Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. You're thinking, Mark, haven't we already heard a couple of messages on this? Yes, we have. Matthew chapter 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. A few questions to help us think about this and about what it means for us. And we'll see how many we get through. Number one, and this has been a question I've had from a number of you uh, in the last two days in conversations. How are we to fulfill the Great Commission? This is an important question for us as Christians. Is this going, is this going and making discipling, uh, disciples and baptizing and teaching, is this to be done? And this is the question in various forms you've put to me, it breaks. Is this to be done basically by individual evangelizing and discipling? Certainly it will not be done without individuals sharing the gospel and teaching others. But is that all Jesus intended? Is this really for us just plane tickets and tracts and Bible studies? Or is there anything else in these words? And what you've heard suggested here in some of the talks is that there is more. That the local church is actually part of Jesus' intent. And to some of you, that's tasted funny. It's like, oh, really? I don't think I had seen that here before. Are you just kind of sticking that in here? I mean, is this Radius's particular take on things? What, how, how Jesus-y is this? Is this really what he intends? Now, I mean, we know the local church is to be involved in outreach and evangelism and equipping members and welcoming visitors and clearly proclaiming the gospel, but have we also considered that these gospel imperatives are to result not simply in more individuals converted or in improvements in society at large. You know, if you have a lot of conversions, like the alcoholism rate drops or racism declines because of mass conversions, but that it's also to result in new congregations being begun. Have we thought about that? That church planting is normal as the means of and as a result of obeying the Great Commission. Now that's been presumed in a couple of the messages we've heard, maybe more than a couple. Uh, it's not been addressed in uh, every message, but it has struck, I know, a number of you that, that that idea seems to be running around. And I just think it would be good before we go if we just look at this head on. Listen again with that question in your mind. Listen again to this ending of Matthew, beginning verse 16. 
Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Now, uh, we were looking at this in the last message yesterday when John was looking at that one phrase about to all nations. But grammatically, you'll note that there's one imperative in this statement, the imperative verb there, make disciples. There's, that's one word in the Greek. And then there are three participles in this statement of Jesus. The first participle, going, uh, translated go often. And that's no bad thing because this participle is first in the word order of the sentence, and it's before the imperative making disciples, so it's not unusual for it to have the force of an imperative, go and make disciples, and sort of a special emphasis. So at least Jesus is assuming that his disciples will be going to fulfill this command. More likely, he is directly commanding them to go. And where should they be going? Well, that's what we thought of for an hour yesterday afternoon at this time. Uh, they should be going to all the nations. Now, back in chapter 10, in one of the five teaching blocks in Matthew's gospel, have you noticed that Matthew has five teaching blocks? That is, if you have a red letter edition, you'll notice there are five large sections of red print in the book of Matthew. Well, Jesus has sent out his disciples, but only as his own mission was then to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, Jesus as the exalted judge of all the earth has risen with the authority of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the authority of the Almighty. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 18. His view is now extended beyond Israel, as he had always intended, to all nations. And what is it that the Lord had prophesied centuries before? Through Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 6, we read, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And this ties up Matthew's gospel so nicely, because back in 1-1, Jesus is said to be the son of Abraham. So Matthew had taken us back centuries earlier even than Isaiah to what God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, standing on this mount, these gathered disciples, whether they were, were 11 of them there or a few dozen or several hundred, these witnesses had now seen how it is that God had always intended to fulfill that promise he made to Abram all those millennia earlier. This is how it's going to happen. This is how all nations will be blessed through Abraham's faith. It's interesting that the exalted Christ doesn't simply issue orders that all should come to him, but he sends messengers out to find them. Have you ever noticed how even the way he does it is reflecting his pursuing love, his very outgoing nature as the God that he is, 
even in the very act of having someone come to us with the gospel, whatever people group we may be a part of this afternoon, whenever that happened to us, we saw a picture, a marvelous illustration of God's initiative in coming to us in Christ. Born not of the will of man, but of the will of God. The Spirit blows where he pleases. So what this begins to point us to then is this simple observation that the local church is the means God has given us to fulfill his commands. And when we think about it, this makes sense because church-less evangelism leaves the convert unhelped and exposed. What is a church? A church is a body of Christians who are in regular fellowship with the word rightly preached and baptism and the Lord's Supper rightly administered. That is administered as signs of the gospel, not as acts which merely by doing them save us. That's how your Baptists and Presbyterians can agree together. Administered as signs of the gospel, not as acts which merely by doing them save us. If, in fact, the Bible teaches that God creates a people for himself through his word, then the church is centered on God's word preached. And if, in fact, the Bible teaches that baptism and the Lord's Supper mark off the visible church from the world, then their correct administration will be linked to faith in God's promises. The center and source of the congregation's life is the word of God. God's promises to his people in Scripture create and sustain his people. Therefore, the congregation is responsible to ensure, as much as it lies within its power, that the word of God is preached when it regularly assembles. So, friends, if the Scriptures are the word of life, as Paul calls them in Philippians 2, they should both generate and regulate the church's life. Christians gather in congregations to hear one who is gifted by God stand in the place of God by giving God's word to God's people. Through preaching, Christians come to know and understand God and his word. It's a word to which Christians contribute nothing other than hearing and heeding. A Christian sermon, even in its very method, is a picture of God's grace. Since faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, hearing God's word rather than, say, seeing the mass, it is appropriately placed at the center of the congregation's public assembly. Christians rely on God's word. So preaching of the word must be absolutely central. And the preaching, which most exemplifies this, is expositional preaching. Preaching in which the point of the passage of Scripture is the point of the message the preacher brings. Scripture is both authoritative and sufficient, and this should be clear in our gatherings. Just a little history here. In the 16th century, the Reformation rediscovered this biblical truth of justification by faith alone, and that was a recovery of the biblical gospel. As Protestant congregations replaced sacramental ritualism with gospel preaching, the sacraments or ordinances themselves took on another purpose. Really, they took on their biblical purpose, which was marking out the church from the world and providing a visible picture 
of the gospel message accepted by faith. As a result, the church became defined not by individuals who were baptized and who witnessed the mass, but by individuals who personally heard and believed the promises set forth in baptism and the Lord's Supper and in the sermons. And therefore, they participated in those rituals. I remember being in Hatfield House, north of London in England, and being in the, this great manor house's chapel. And there was this huge elaborate altar and there was a balcony. And I said to the guide, I said, well, those two things are fighting with each other, aren't they? And she kind of laughed. I said, this balcony is original because the house was built in the 1500s after the Reformation. I said, the balcony was there because this, this room, this chapel was built by people who believed that faith came by hearing God's word. So they didn't have to walk to the front. But this altar, this elaborate altarpiece is when there was a move to re-Romanize the Church of England in the 19th century. And so they put that in there in the 19th century to make it look more like a Roman Catholic church. And the guy said, yeah, that's right. So those balconies are Protestant and that thing is Roman. And those balconies are right. It's not just that the Church of England built this thing so they should be allowed to keep it. It's that those balconies are what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that faith comes by hearing the word. This faith is given visible form, then it appears in the people who believe it, who are baptized and who take the Lord's Supper. So faith's role in distinguishing the visible church from the world makes the church what it is. Faith shows itself initially in the believer's submission to baptism, as Jesus commanded right here in the Great Commission, and then repeatedly by his or her participation in the Lord's Supper. So, the Christian gospel requires a conscious belief. When God's authoritative word is taught, it must be consciously believed and trusted. And this trust or faith is what distinguishes God's people who've made an initial confession in baptism and who make a continuing confession through participation in the Lord's Supper. And when the sufficiency of scripture and the necessity of faith in practicing the ordinances are affirmed, then you have a biblically faithful church. So, to use traditional Christian language, a true church is marked by the right preaching of the Word of God and the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the preaching of the gospel and in the lives of those baptized and communing, a corporate witness to the truth of the gospel begins to appear. So, to the basic question, how are we to fulfill the Great Commission? The answer is through planting local churches, through preaching the gospel and planting local churches. Let me ask a second question to try to clarify the Great Commission. Let's, let's pull the camera back a little bit. What's the big picture? What's the big picture from, from beginning to end? So in the Old Testament, you have the beginning. God creates all that is out of nothing. He's the creator of all. And each individual is made in the image of God. But what's interesting is it's clear in the Bible that God has always worked with a corporate people. You look at the Old Testament. God has always worked corporately. That's his pattern. He didn't just make Adam. He made Adam and Eve. Who could make more people? He didn't just call Noah. He called Noah and his family. He didn't just call Abram. He called Abram and his descendants. 
In the Old Testament, it's mainly a story of God working with the people of Israel, this nation. This is how God did it. And at the end, if we then run to the end of the Bible, we see the Great Commission fulfilled in what? In the heavenly church. We were listening to the choir as John read it yesterday from Revelation 5, 9. Or we can go over a couple of chapters after that to chapter 7. And Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Ho, ho! So we know the Great Commission is fulfilled. We don't have to worry. It's not going to work. Right there. We have read the end. We know this command actually gets sufficiently obeyed. We don't need to worry in that sense. Every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's why James Gordon followed his brother out to the Aramangans because he knew there would be some Aramangans there. And he wanted to be a part of bringing the, the blessings of God through the gospel to these people for whom Christ had died. Friends, this is a multitude of people from all over the world and they would testify to the faithfulness of God forever. Friends, the, the point of the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, is God's revelation of himself to us. In fact, it's all about his word to us. It's all about the promises that he has made and the promises that he has kept and our response then to him of trust. As Paul wrote in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. This is how all of this mission stuff also gets very real for us as individuals. Not just in some future decision to go or prepare to go, but like right now, will you believe the promises of God? Will you trust him with your life? Will you believe the things he said are true in the promises that you read that affect your today and tomorrow? That's why we have the character of wisdom presented as it is in the book of Proverbs. That's why Paul tells us in, in Romans 4 that Abram is an example to us of that faith. So God gives his word to us, his promises, and we respond to him by trusting his word, just like Adam and Eve didn't in the garden of Eden, just like Jesus did throughout his life, trusted his heavenly father's promises, especially in the garden of Gethsemane. And as we hear and believe his word, we begin again to have the relationship with God for which we were literally made. We come to know and love our heavenly father. And we are in relationship with him. And this is the hope which we can trust and should trust because this hope will not disappoint. And this is what the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is all about. So friends, this is the big picture in which we need to understand the Great Commission. The big picture in the Bible from Israel to the redeemed in heaven shows that God is known as faithful as he shows himself as faithful to his people. That's the big picture in which we read the Great Commission. That helps us understand it. Let me ask a third question to help us understand it. What has God done? 
What has God done? In Jesus' ministry, we think of in Jesus' ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have it recounted, because of how God has always been working through the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, Noah and his family, Abram and his family, the nation of Israel, it is no surprise when Jesus speaks of loving one another, much like he speaks of loving God in his answer about the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like the first. Not the same as the first, but he did observe it's like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just that first commandment of some kind of private internal ecstasy left all by itself. If you see somebody who claims to love God but does not love his brother whom he has seen, what does John say? You lie and do not the truth. No, Jesus is the one who said these things are so closely connected. In fact, he even said in John 13 that what would be distinctive of his disciples would be the way they loved one another. That would be what would show to the world the truth and the reality of this message that he was teaching. So it wasn't surprising for Jesus to establish a particular people around him. This is what he's talking about here in the Great Commission in verse 18 when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what we see is going on with the church earlier in Matthew 16. When you look back to Matthew 16, 18, and Jesus refers to Peter's confession and to the authority uh, that Peter has as he is giving Peter and for Peter, those who will make Peter's confession the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he says in Matthew 18, a couple chapters later, when he says, if somebody has sinned and they won't repent, you tell it finally to the church. And if they won't listen, if they won't listen then the church uh, should speak to them and put them out of the church, basically exercise those keys. What we see is that Jesus has entrusted the church with these keys, his authority in the proclamation of his message and the leading and shepherding of his people. Friends, we know theologically that Jesus came to do the work of his heavenly father. And we find in scripture that the church is fundamentally the work of the triune God. God cares about his church. In 1 Timothy 3, he calls it his family. We read the extraordinary statement in Acts 20, 28, that God bought the church with his own blood. Christ founded the church. We know that in Matthew 16, 18. He's the first one that uses the word like that. And furthermore, we know from the seven churches he addresses by letter in Revelation 2 and 3 that he cares about the churches. We see this again at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. And, and we see that Paul says in Ephesians 5 that Christ loves the church and he feeds and cares for the church. And in Ephesians 4, that he gives gifts which build up the church. And of course, we know from 1 Corinthians that God's spirit gifts the church. So the church is not something which is fundamentally a human idea. It was not created by a, a preacher's union that had members who needed jobs. No, the church is not a human creation. It is fundamentally God's idea. It is God's work. So what has God done? He has made his church. Let me ask you a fourth question to help us understand this more clearly and close in on this. What did the apostles understand? 
So you and I might have our own idea of having heard the Great Commission when we were maybe a child in Sunday school, or maybe if you were converted at age 30, you quickly saw how prominent this was among Christians. These came to be verses you heard of often and you knew about, and you had your own ideas of what it must have meant, what the scene would have looked like with the apostles standing around as Jesus gives these final commissioning words to go into all the nations, and thus the explosion of Christianity begins in the history of the world. Your ideas, but the fourth question What did the apostles understand? What did the people who actually heard him say these words physically, what did they do? What did they teach? Well, it's a good question. If you look back through the New Testament to instruct us between Christ's ascension and his return, what do we find? Is the Great Commission fulfilled primarily through individuals evangelizing and discipling. That's what some of you have wondered this week. I think to conceive only of that, though, is to miss a crucial aspect of what the apostles themselves clearly understood Jesus to command. And we can understand that and tell that by what they did and also by what they taught. We can look at their example and at their teaching. Consider what the apostles did. They established churches. I mean, did you listen to all those passages in Acts Harshit read this morning or alluded to? You just consider the churches in the book of Acts. The story of the gospel spread is the story of the churches being spread from Jerusalem to Rome. Consider the church in Jerusalem resulting from the preaching of the gospel there in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, or consider the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11. But we can go on through the book of Acts. Again, some of the same passages that Harshit would have mentioned. You could, you could look at Acts 14. If you have questions about this further, look at Acts 14, 21 to 28. And you'll see the church uh, there has, uh, has elders attached to it, and that it is the basic Christian community, the kind of Christian family. When Paul recounted his own conversion to Christ, his own call, when he was recounting that to Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 18, Paul said that he was commissioned basically to church plant among the Gentiles. If you go to Acts 15, 41, Paul talks about going back and strengthening the churches there in Syria and Cilicia. In Acts 16.5, Luke notes that the churches were strengthened and grew in number. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11 and Hebrews 10, there's the assumption in the New Testament letters that Christians are coming together regularly. Maybe even we can say on the first day of the week from 1 Corinthians 16 and Revelation 1, calling it the Lord's Day. Or you think of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, where Paul mentions his concern for all the churches. Or Paul's great prayer in Ephesians 1, where he's praying for Christ to strengthen the church. Friends, these are all just some examples, and you can come up with more, of what the apostles actually did. And in fact, it's not just the apostles. In the New Testament, you see the churches did the same thing. The churches worked to plant other churches. Local churches helped to plant further churches. Romans 15, 24. Workers came as representatives 
They were to be thought of as representatives of the church that they were coming from and that was supporting them. 2 Corinthians 8, 23. Uh, the Philippian church helped Paul to plant more churches. Romans, I mean, Philippians 4, 15. In fact, John even rebukes the church he's writing to for not helping missionaries. In 3 John 9 and 10. Well, friends, this is what the apostles did, and it makes sense. I mean, how else could they make disciples teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you? You can't do that without a local church. Without a local church, you could teach them to obey some things I commanded you, but not everything because of the role of shepherds. In the New Testament, the shepherds were to guard the sheep. The sheep aren't to be left out on their own. The shepherds are to guide the sheep. The shepherds are to feed the sheep. And the shepherds are to guard the gospel. But it's not just the role of the shepherds. It's also the role of the sheep. The sheep have a role to protect each other. Friends, there's a a particularly self-conscious relationship you're to have with certain other Christians. Not with every Christian on the planet, but with those that you actually meet with weekly who see you and you see them. You're supposed to help protect them. The sheep are helped to, to help to guide each other, admonishing one another. The sheep are to help feed each other, teaching one another. We read in 1 Corinthians, the sheep help to guard the gospel themselves. You can see that negatively by what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 or, or positively in Galatians 1. So the, the local church with faithful elders and a faithful congregation protects the gospel. In this sense, the local church is the best way to further an unadulterated gospel. Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.15 calls the church the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the converted sheep need to be called together to be protected, shepherded, cared for, overseen. That's why elders are called to be examples to them in 1 Peter 5. And that's why God's Holy Spirit gives gifts which do what? They build up the church. If we had more time, we could open up 1 Corinthians 14 and think it through. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is super clear. You pick which gifts are used in the assembly by which ones will most build up the church. That's how you decide. Why? Because what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's building up the church. That's what the Holy Spirit does. This emphasis is on the Christians desiring gifts which build up the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Or or look where God is committed to giving his gifts to build us up in the church. That's where you find these gifts. So the local church is how we teach to obey. That's important phrase there in that last verse of Matthew's gospel, verse 20. Teaching them everything I've commanded you. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say teaching them everything I've commanded you. Look, look at it there in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. His final command to his disciples in Matthew's gospel is this. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus wants disciples, not merely decisions. He's not interested in the statistics. He's interested in the people. Jesus didn't send the disciples out for any other reason but to make more disciples. It is Jesus and his commands, which others are to be taught and to be taught to obey. And this is what it means to be a disciple, a Christian. Are there any true Christians who are not disciples? No. That, that's an empty set. 
Truly becoming a Christian may happen in a moment, theologically it does, but its effects are permanent. And friends, this is one of the reasons what uh, Brooks and Chad and Caleb and I were talking about on the panel earlier today is so important. This idea of conversions that are false conversions, uh, unwittingly, no doubt, encouraged by confirming and counting converts too quickly, is such a bane on the spread of the gospel. It is no small matter to confuse people on what it means to be a Christian. Too often, Christians hear this great commission only in terms of all nations, but they neglect the other dimension of all generations. They want to make sure that this year there's a witness in every nation. But the way they try to set up those witnesses is absolutely neglectful of a continuing witness, which would be built more by following what God's word says. That's where we learn what a church is, to reach all generations. That's what Jesus is saying there in his very last word, always to the very end of the age. We're, merely, we're not looking to see merely brush fires started that quickly burn out, but congregations organized, which last not just for days and weeks, but for decades and generations. Friend, this building that we're meeting in right now is paid for by a congregation that was organized 150 years ago. There were some Christians in Minneapolis who probably had far less disposable income than we do, and yet they organized themselves together and decided that they would, under God, do their best to perpetuate a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city. And they did it by making sure that there would be someone who would preach the true gospel, and a continuing witness to that among the members of this particular congregation. And there have been untold benefits to the church universal through the faithfulness of that, simply that one band of believers. Friends, multiply that by hundreds of churches, by thousands of churches, by hundreds of thousands of churches. Do you see what the Lord in his wisdom does? True discipleship is not merely about beliefs that are mere opinions, no matter how deeply held. It's not merely about a prayer once prayed or a decision once made or a Bible study once attended. True discipleship is about our lives. Jesus' teachings are to be obeyed. His command is not fulfilled when people merely know the things that Jesus taught or even when knowing them, they believe them to be true. It is fulfilled when they are known and believed and lived out. Anything we teach our friends, those overseas, those we work with, that does not include this understanding of what it means to be a Christian is not the real thing. Anything else is not real discipling. It is not real missions. It is just fake missions. And the world is filled with fake missions. It is not real evangelism of our own young people, or of anybody else. We need preaching and heeding. We need baptism in the Lord's Supper. You can't have those without the local church baptizing. The Lord's Supper is not to be done alone for private devotion. Read 1 Corinthians 11. We need to obey the commands about church discipline in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and elsewhere. Friends, do you want to mature in Christ as we're called to in Colossians 1? 
Well, we know that once we're converted, we will love God. And part of our loving God will include a love for one another that is lived out. And it will show itself by displaying to the world a unity in the church. Friends, there are so many ways the manifold wisdom of God that we were considering yesterday morning from Ephesians 310, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the local church. So putting it all together, we need a set of self-conscious commitments in our discipleship in order to obey what the Bible teaches. I had the privilege and joy a few years ago of being in India. And at one point I was in New Delhi and I was in a meeting, probably about a quarter of this size, all pastors, mainly of a brethren background. Now, those of you who are brethren, I love you very much. I do think you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. But you have a funny part in your ecclesiology, which I think is wrong. You're, uh, you're, you're, you, you can be somewhat skeptical of there being a, a set-apart uh, eldership and particularly a full-time paid eldership. And you can be very skeptical of a formal church membership. But one of the joys for me is that made me have to explain to a group of loving but skeptical people this idea of church membership. So I simply wheeled out a whiteboard and put three dots on there. And I said, okay, this is a pastor or pastors. This is one Christian. And this is a particular group of Christians. Now, does the Bible have anything to tell us about how that pastor or pastors is related to a particular group of Christians and to each Christian in that group? And does the Bible have anything to tell us about how a particular Christian relates to a particular pastor or pastors who teach him, Galatians 6, many places, or to a particular group of Christians that he meets with regularly? Or over here, does this particular group of Christians have any particular responsibility in the New Testament to a particular pastor or pastors that they meet with and are taught by regularly and to each individual member of it? And so what we did for about the next 20 or 30 minutes we just started writing down New Testament passages that talked about the responsibilities and obligations we have. And when we got them all up on the board, and we must have had 50 or 60 references up there with arrows going all six ways, you know, then I said, okay, we can do this every time, or we can take all of this and we can just know that's what we mean when we use the word church membership. That's what church membership is. It's, it's all of these New Testament obligations that we self-consciously, you can't, without knowing it, be a part of the church in that sense. You, you have to self-consciously take on, you, you know you're responsible to these people, they're responsible for you. You know you're responsible for that pastor and he's responsible for you. And you, you, these things have to be aware. You have to be aware of them. But that's what you see in the New Testament. Number five, a fifth question to try to clarify this. What does this mean for us? Just a few practical exhortations and implications. Uh, number one, I think it means we want to focus our efforts on church planting. We want to focus our mission efforts on church planting. Our goal is more healthy, sound, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching congregations. I love the quotation that Brooks read to us yesterday from John Payton, the end of his autobiography, about a solid church in the midst of every people. That's what we're aiming for. A second thing, consider who you are sending out and be willing to send out your best. Pray for and train those who are qualified to be elders and send them out. Number three, consider what you've trained them to do. 
you need to understand what a church is and how it works. And it will be helpful to many of them if they have the ability to lead. Number four, consider how you're going to support them. Because you're not after merely a six-month evangelistic mission, you are in it until a church is established and a vital witness is flourishing there that, Lord willing, will be able to be self-supporting. Number five, the church you're part of should have this as a culture, seeing the kingdom of God in the local church and seeing the, the work of the Lord expanding in your area and beyond. I'm the pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. No man should be the pastor of that church if the only church he cares about is the Capitol Hill Baptist Church of Washington, D.C. No man. None. No. So in our services on Sunday morning, we pray always for the Capitol Hill Baptist Church of Washington, D.C. because we need a lot of prayer. But we also pray for other churches. We pray for Restoration Church in Northwest. We pray for Falls Church Anglican. We pray for Fourth Pres. We pray for Church of the Resurrection in First Baptist Alexandria. We pray for Cherrydale Baptist and McLean Bible. We pray for these vital Christian witnesses. We pray for churches that we've helped to plant, New Covenant Baptist or Chevrolet Baptist. We pray for churches that we've helped to see revitalized, Sterling Park Baptist, Delray Baptist. We, we want to see God's work prosper by all of the people who are handling the gospel in our area and beyond. Number six, encourage those other evangelical church planters around you. There should not be any competitiveness. Pray for them by name. A dear URC pastor, Brian Lee, they're about to lose their building. So we had him in our service, our prayer service a couple of, uh, a few weeks ago on a Sunday evening, just to hear how they're doing, how Christ Reformed Church is doing, and to pray for them. Uh, and I would encourage you to have such similar gospel open-handedness. Number seven, consider if there are some existing churches that should also be reclaimed particularly if you're dealing in urban areas. And this is not just the United States, friends. This is many places around the world. Real estate is just getting too expensive and buildings are super helpful for churches. They are not essential and they are not churches. They are super helpful for churches. And COVID has just reminded some of us of this very painfully. It is really nice to have a space we can meet in that we have all kitted out ready for how we're gonna do things on Sunday. It's just so useful for when we gather, let alone for other meetings through the week. Well. Are there some assets for the kingdom around your city that are just going to waste? What can you do to reclaim those assets for gospel preaching congregations? And number eight, pray for the spread of healthy churches. Pray for the, head, the spread of healthy churches. That, those were sub points under my fifth point, which is what does this mean for us? And I suggested eight things it means for us. And now I go on to my sixth question and my final question. What is our goal in fulfilling the Great Commission? And the answer is simply the glory of God in the church. Let me ask a very theological question for you, but it has a practical impact. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which I'm going to take, I'm going to get large buy-in on that here. <laughs> how do we see Jesus today. Jesus is not to be worshipped through physical icons or images. 
We have no account of Jesus teaching his disciples to draw or sketch or sculpt. Well, we do have books they wrote, but no images that they made remaining for our adoration. In fact, the earliest image we found of Christ was made in derision. It was found on the image of a Roman catacomb. And it's a bare cross with a a stick figure with an ass's head. And then a little stick figure at the bottom kneeling. And underneath it says, Aleximenos worships his God. It was someone mocking a Christian. Now, John of Damascus, great theologian of the East, said that to deny icons was to deny the incarnation, the Son of God taking on flesh. It's a horrible heresy. And it may be in John's day that some who opposed the use of icons did deny the incarnation. I understand that. But those who were there before John of Damascus, my Greek Orthodox friend, the older tradition, neither denied the incarnation nor used icons. The point of the incarnation was never the mere physical appearance of Christ. It was the life of flesh and blood that Christ lived out. I think if we found a photograph of Christ, he probably could not be identified if he's standing there with his 12 disciples. I don't think we could tell which one Jesus is. There would be no gold plate behind his head, you know. There would be nothing distinctive in his appearance unless maybe we read Isaiah 53.3 to mean he'd be the ugliest one among them. Not sure what that means, but it could be. But I think if we let that become a moving picture, I think by his loving interactions with others, his glory would begin to appear in the unparalleled way he loved others. Friends, I'm not deriding our desire for the visible. People say we live in a visual age as if you know, iPhones created it to be a visible age and never was before. Friends, every age has been a visible age. God made us with eyes. We've always appreciated the immediacy of sight. We crave that. We naturally desire to see God immediately. But that blessing was taken from us at the fall. So we live in salvation history in the era not of the eye, but of the ear. We hear the future before we see it. Now, one day, that glorious immediacy of seeing God will be restored to us. And that, friends, is the climax of the Bible right there in Revelation 22, 4. They shall see God. Hallelujah. Until then, God is made most visible, it seems, not in two-dimensional paintings, but in the lives lived out in the power of his spirit in the local church. That's his plan, it seems, for church membership to display the glory of his nature and goodness and love and so bring him praise. Friends, Christ identifies with the church. That's why we have this image of the church as Christ's body. I've heard somebody say, oh, wasn't Paul a creative theologian? You know, what a wonderful idea, the church is the body of Christ. Oh, I think he got that idea from Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know, where he's struck down and the risen Christ doesn't say, Paul, Paul, why are you going to persecute Christians or even the church when he's going to persecute the church in Damascus? He says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Christ so identifies himself with the church. That's why the church should reflect his love. The church makes the gospel appear. 
Any claim to faithfully love God without loving your neighbor makes your claim ring hollow. And the church reflects God's wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, like we were thinking about yesterday. It appears in the church. The church is how Christ's authority is to be displayed. His glory is displayed through the church. The gospel is, as it were, made visible. Because our church over the years has grown, some people have asked me from time to time, what's your evangelism plan? Ah, it's Jesus' evangelism plan. It's the local church. Friends, the way the church lives together is what it means to obey the Great Commission. The church is important because it's tied to the good news itself. The church is to be the appearance of the gospel. It's what the gospel looks like when it's played out in the lives of people. Take away the local church and you take away the visible manifestation of the gospel in the world. Christians in churches then are called to practice display evangelism and the world will witness the reign of God begun in a community of people made in his image and reborn by his spirits. So Christians, not just as individuals, but as God's people bound together in churches are the clearest picture that the world sees of who God is and of what his will is for them. So friends, the local church is where the authority of Christ is exercised. The local church is where disciples are made and baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The local church is where Christians are taught to obey everything Christ commanded us. To this end, Christ has promised us his spirit until he returns. So we see that church planting is the normal business of the local church. We see that the Great Commission is normally fulfilled through giving our lives to start and serve and shepherd local churches. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the plans that you have for us. We thank you for how you have bent yourself to show us your love through your son, Jesus Christ, how you have poured out your spirit on us. We thank you for each local church represented here. And Lord, we pray for more in our land and around the world. Use us in our churches. To that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.